Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 31 of Three Course Politics. I'm Hills, and we have a very special episode for you today for a few reasons. So first thing is Josh is not able to be with us today on the pod. He is all good. He uh, just has a few things, and he wasn't able to join for today's episode. But he'll be back very soon. But uh, we actually have a special guest today. His name is Jeff. And Jeff, do you want to say a couple of words about yourself? Yeah, Hills. Uh, Obviously, we've known each other for a while. More than happy to lend my time to uh, help out and uh, have a great conversation with you. Well, we're we're glad. I'm glad. I mean, who's we? I'm glad you're you're here. (laughs) I've known Jeff. I mean, at this point, it's like over ten years. We were in high school together, and uh, there were times Jeff and I. I like there are old Facebook posts of uh, Jeff and I arguing about politics back in. When we were, we didn't know anything better. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about a few things. I mean, what a what a few weeks to not have an episode. Uh, it feels like there has been five years crammed into the last few weeks. But for your appetizer, we're gonna all we're gonna talk about COVID and POTUS. Um, although he is over COVID, COVID may not be over him. Your entrees. We're gonna recap both of the debates: the first presidential debate and the vice presidential debate. What needed to happen? What happened? Um, and what, if any, impacts come from them. And for your dessert, we're going to talk about the long-shot long shot Senate challengers. So the Senate is up for grabs, and there's a lot of uh, races on the board this year, and we're going to talk about a few of the long-shot ones. Have you subscribed? If not, you can please do so now. It'll help get your episodes quicker. All you have to do is go to your podcast app, wherever you're listening, click subscribe. And if you want to be super kind to us, you can leave, or not, you can leave a written review. Um, if we get five or more reviews, it will help make the show turn up for other folks. So if you have something to say about us, please do it. Preferably nice, but if not, <laughs> that's fine too. Jeff, you want to you wanna add anything? Hills and Josh, by extension, are some of the two of the most smart people I know when talking about politics. So definitely give them that subscribe. Well, thank you. And uh, everyone will know how smart you are, too, after after we're done today. So with that, we're going to go into your pre-dinner shot question, and it'll come right up. Your pre-dinner shot question for you today, uh, it's uh, it one that almost stumped me, and it is, when was the first televised vice presidential debate? Again, when was the first televised vice presidential debate and uh, when i was looking this up it was actually super hard to find because i don't think anyone cares when the first televised vice presidential debate was but the answer um i wasn't uh, i was pretty surprised by the answer honestly uh jeff what about what do you think about that honestly i had my guess and i was wrong so that says it about everything <laughs> well if you were if you're wondering when the first televised vice presidential debate was you'll find out at the end of the episode or you can look it up in the meantime but we'll tell it to you regardless uh, so now we're going to talk about covid and potus and it's going to come up right now for your appetizer today we are all we're going to talk about covid and potus and uh, this could be an involving situation as we'll get into it and as you'll learn but Let's take you through what happened first. So this is a little bit stale by now, but the content is probably very live. So as you all know, Trump got COVID on October 1st, likely positive much earlier than that, and was in the hospital uh, the other week getting a mix of super experimental drugs, steroids, and oxygen. So that's a good good thing. 
who has a, <laughs> if he wasn't that sick, I guess he wouldn't get super experimental cocktails of drugs. Multiple, multiple Republicans, including many senators, also got COVID um, after there were no rules at the White House. Many link uh, all this spate of cases back to a super spreader event, which was for Judge Amy Coney Barrett um, when she was nominated to be a Supreme Court justice. Trump was released from the hospital and has uh, been recovering at the White House and is back on the campaign trail. There were lots of fun tweets about who would guess that Trump is back on the campaign campaign trial in 10 days and uh, he was he certainly was polling has pumped up biden's numbers across the board nationally with a smaller impact on swing states but there is some movement in biden's directions after the covid diagnosis the focus of the election came back to covid which voters overwhelmingly disapprove of trump's handling in every single poll that there is maybe except in alabama Uh, so what does this mean this means a couple of things we're going to get into the conversation about this Trump's health could impact the campaign. He stopped doing the events that he always wanted to do at the doctor's reports have not been transparent. So we have to take, I guess, their word for it that he's negative. But again, COVID stays with you. And I would not be surprised if he gets this again. It, you know, exposed the White House incompetence handling COVID and give Democrats a really fresh line of attack with voters. If he can't protect himself, how will he protect you and your families from this virus, which he hasn't and won't? It also goes well with his down, you know, it also goes well with his downplaying of COVID from the Woodward tapes. He knew about this from the beginning and he downplayed it and now he, he's got it himself. You know, he, the, the sheerest amount of incompetence of the world and he's an active display of it. And lastly, you know, it, it made all the Senate races much, much tougher, shaking up support for Republicans across the board. There is movement for Democratic Senate challengers after this, almost every race that there is. So it didn't just affect the president's numbers. So, Jeff, uh, what do you think about what is what does Trump getting COVID mean for him? Look, I think looking at the the race this late and uh, very soon until Election Day, like Biden is more or less the leading fairly substan- substantially. Uh, and what Trump needs to do, right, is create change, right, and cr- generate positive headlines, right? What has really happened is he's essentially wasted a week plus dealing with this this issue and the kind of consequences and the negative headlines. It's just, again, a lost opportunity in terms of them to really move the conversation while, frankly, moving the conversation uh, in a way that's probably detrimental to his chances. Again, every poll out there has Trump, his disapproval on COVID is overwhelming. Meanwhile, I, I, I'm still perplexed about this. People still trust him on the economy. The economy is his best poll number. And uh, he took, he took the focus, whatever focus he was trying to get on the economy, it's now on the thing that people hate most about him. So it's probably not the best strategy for him to keep flaunting the rules like this. No, no, definitely hells. And I think... Maybe some of that is a legacy of people kind of viewing the parties as um, like one is pro-economy, one's the, the other party is more pro-rights and social justice and all those kind of great things. But I think when you look at it historically, that's clearly not the case, even if voter perceptions um, are not there. Yeah, and, and talk about perceptions. I mean, Dave, I know you saw this. We were talking about, actually, you sent me this. Um, Dave Wasserman, the smartest guy on Twitter, was talking about how uh, the villages in Florida, the 
the large I think the largest retirement community in the United States. Correct. It's multiple um, zip codes, hills. Multiple zip multiple <laughs> multiple zip codes of sheer elderly people. Uh, and they voted like overwhelmingly for Trump. It was like 69, 30 something for Trump in 2016. And uh, they may be a bellwether about Florida because el- the senior citizens of Florida hate Trump's handling of COVID, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're an older person, you're the higher risk and you see the president just flaunting the rules all the time. That's probably not good for your own health, right? Yeah. And I think when you look at his recent conduct after getting it and how he's obviously learned absolutely nothing from his experience, in fact, is now downplaying it even more, right? Like that's obviously not going <laughs> to play well with like with a, uh, grandparents like, who haven't seen their grandkids all year. Yeah, I think that's a really good line of attack. And I've seen some ads at least maybe not explicitly from the Biden campaign, but from other like democratic aligned organizations saying the same thing, right? Like you did what you were supposed to do. Meanwhile, he is going, he just had an event in Florida. Um, he just had an event in Florida and hasn't having another one this week in areas in Ocala, which is actually right near the villages. So you may see, I, I mean, if, if COVID rips through that village, uh, that the villages, which is a huge community, is, you know, three zip codes, but could be really bad news for the president. And if, if he can't win seniors, he's not winning the election. No, and I think broadly, when you've looked at the kind of shifts we've seen over the year in terms of the polling, like he's not where he needs to be, assuming obviously a big caveat here that the poll, the polling is... Uh, representative of what will be seen on uh, voting day. Yeah, <laughs> that's the big thing, all right? Because <laughs> the polling has to be somewhat accurate, right? It, does, it may not be 100%, but if you have a poll that is plus three Biden, but in actuality it's plus two Trump because his his voters didn't respond to the poll, that's a, that's a bad thing. But there's been less indication of that actually happening according to people who know that stuff. So that's a big hope, <laughs> hopefully. So what, what are we going to look for? What are we going to look for here? What's next on this, this COVID front? First thing is first is Trump's health. Trump could honestly, and this is what I'm thinking, he could land back in the hospital. He had been hyped up on steroids. He's an older man who doesn't exercise quite a bit. He eats like crap, according to every single report that there is. We also don't know the impacts of COVID. So this is something to watch, especially if he's doing a rally a day and he's running himself ragged, he could be back in the hospital. So he, he might die before election day. That I don't think he will, but the possibility is there. So Hills, and I think one of the points you make there about the impact, like there's actually a lot of, uh, or not a lot, but there are cases, right, where people who had, had severe instances of COVID have like neurological lasting kind of side effects, right? Where they're, they're feeling less cloudy and less cognizant, right? Where, like, do we, we, we genuinely don't have a guide on the state of Trump's mental and kind of physical health, which is obviously very troubling, but frankly, not surprising from this administration. We don't know what his health is. Like, he could actually be doing poorly right now, but he could be playing, playing it. Maybe he could be getting the super steroids that he's getting right now, right? So we don't know. So that's one active thing to look for. Another thing is polling, as we've been just chatting about. Polling has been great for Biden, but is it a, quote, sugar hive right now? I mean, there's another debate happening, so we'll see what happens. But um, Real Clear Politics, Sean Trendy, 
um, has an interview with The New Yorker uh, speaking about this sugar high potential for Biden's, uh, Biden's numbers. And I really encourage you to read it. I'm going to link it in the show notes. Um, he's basically saying that approval right now for Trump is either between 43 and 46 percent. And 46 might be high enough of, even though it's not, even though it's, you know, below 50, it might be high enough for re-election. The counter to this is that Biden's, Biden, you know, has high favorables. The economy could push Trump over the top, potentially. COVID response is not, is, is bad, so it could balance out economic approval. So there's a lot of moving parts with the polling. So, Jeff, do you want to speak to any more of that? Yeah, and I think broadly, when you look at B- Biden's margin in the polling, it only kind of tells half the story, right? Like, he's pulling, like, objectively, Biden's, like, is disliked more or less than most politicians in the kind of current uh, state of politics in America. So he has that going for him, right? So while Trump's approval rating might not be crazy low, right, it is somewhat potentially counterbalanced by Biden's kind of high favorables. And frankly, he's his absolute voter support, like the amount of independents who are actually truly undecided to voters um, are very low even compared to prior elections. They either lean a certain way, right, at this point. I mean, if you're still, if you're an independent undecided at this point, I'm sorry. You know what? Just, where, where, what are you doing? No, yeah, and I think to the point, right, where I think broadly independents are highly favoring Biden, which I think says a lot about um, the overall just like media environment in America where like if you're not, you're if you are outside of that kind of, bubble, right, on the right wing, right, you are able to kind of see the truth and make the, the logical decision come who would actually be better for the country going forward. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think you put this point in here, Jeff, is that, you know, we'll, if polls do change, right, if, if Trump goes, if the race tightens, as I think we're all expecting it to, well, we're bank, Democrats are banking in so many votes right now with early voting and mail-in voting, like, how much will a swing happen, right? Because if, if you have an independent person who ca- decides to cast their, their ballot earlier by mail, they've probably done it already, right? So they can't change their vote. <laughs> Broadly, like, there's so many unknowns with this election, and, like, it's hard to even kind of envision how, like, factors would affect voting patterns, given, like, this is the largest kind of partisan split in, uh, that we've ever seen in terms of early and voting by mail, right? Where at the end of the day, if a lot of independents and Democrat voters who might be willing to kind of cross back over for Trump, like if there is some magical event, October, uh, super surprise that happens, it may be too late. They may frankly have already cast their vote, right? So every day is lost and a lost opportunity for Trump to make up the ground he needs to make up, caveating, uh, assuming the polls are right. Yeah, yeah. Assuming the poll, assuming all the polls are right, which is a big assumption. Uh, and you know, the last thing to look for after this uh, COVID COVID diagnosis of POTUS is COVID itself. States, especially in the Midwest and Wisconsin, because Wisconsin always has just everything that always happens there. States are recording a record rise in cases across the board. You know, will this overwhelm voters and push them towards Biden? If there is a push, it would likely be towards Democrats since Trump is the president, right? Will will an increase in COVID in rural Wisconsin push a conservative voter who likes Trump but just 
can't get over this handling of this. Will it push them to stay home? Will it push them to, to change their vote? Will it push independents who are not sure who to still vote for or leaning towards Trump or Biden? Will, will higher cases in the area really push them towards, towards Biden? Might be. And you know what? They're probably going to be voting closer to Election Day. And COVID cases right now are real. Um, they're, they're rising almost everywhere in this country, eh, with the exception of Vermont and like Maine and Hawaii. So uh, the COVID's a real thing that I think, uh, will people even go in person, right? Will it be safe enough to go in person? I think Republicans will probably show up, but there's something to think about going forward. Yeah, and I think that point is actually very interesting, right? Because Democrats are so... F- um, he- are heavily planning on voting for early and by mail, which would be the more kind of COVID-friendly or safe way to vote, where there'd be less risk. Um, however, right, like the, on the flip side, the Republicans, their views for, for COVID, they take it like less seriously. So I would imagine where, well, if I was a Democrat playing on voting in election day, I might be a little bit more hesitant to expose myself uh, especially if I was uh, in a high-risk category. However, do, it's, it is an interesting question to ask. Like, do we think increasing COVID is going to f- depress the actual election day turnout? And does that even hurt Republicans, given that their voters might not even care? Right. When you have a voter who doesn't care about dying, I, I don't I don't know what could make them <laughs> care at this point. Right. If you're gonna if you're gonna go to the polls, despite if you get a potentially deadly virus. There's just too many ifs. This is it, not only is this like a, the biggest election of our lifetimes. This is also like an unprecedented election in modern history because the last time we had a pandemic was 1918, and there are very few people alive that experienced that. <laughs> Again, those are those are some things to look out for uh, over the next couple of weeks as we close up this election season, and uh, I think that ties ties up everything with this appetizer. Do you have anything uh, else to add there, Jeff? Uh, on to the entree. All right, sounds good. On to the entree. Today, we're going to talk about the presidential debate that happened, it seemed like months ago, but only a few weeks ago, and the vice presidential debate. And so since these happened a little bit ago, we're going to dive into three things. What we think went well, what we think did not go well, and why the debates matter, if they matter at all. So let's start with the presidential debate with Biden and Trump, which was held on September 29th. So what went well? What we think and what I think went well was it demonstrates that Trump was super unfit. I mean, he obviously he interrupted Biden all the time. The convo largely centered on Biden's plans. Biden always explained himself in the debate, right? It was always about asking about Biden's plans, which probably helps a lot of people seeing what he is and isn't for. And not what Trump would be doing for the American people. There was actually not a time where I remember Trump hearing any sort of concrete plan about what Trump 2020 would mean for America, which his voters don't care. But I think people who are listening in probably do care and I think has led to Biden's polling bounce because people actually know a little bit more about what he's going to do for them, which I think is important. Obviously, Trump came out too aggressive which turned off millions of people, including, I have, surprisingly, people who are Republicans in my family, just a few of them, and they all did not like Trump's performance. I didn't stop them from probably going to vote for them, but they all told me that he did a terrible job. And if Republicans are saying that, that means he definitely did a terrible job. 
And, you know, the last thing that what I think, actually not the last thing, but another thing that I think Trump did that went well for Biden was that Trump failed to denounce white supremacy on national TV. I don't, I, you remember that. He told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. He did not say, I denounce white supremacy until like a few days later on a Fox News interview. So millions of people saw that and I think were kind of horrified if they haven't been horrified already, which boggles my mind. Another thing that I think went well for Biden was that he got, got to dispel some of the conspiracies about him. The bar was set so low for him. I thought he did a strong job at stringing together sentences, which I think is the lowest bar there. He pushed back that he's anti-police. I, I think if you were watching that debate and you were, weren't sure if Biden was anti-police, I think you probably got your answer. Even if it's maybe not the one you wanted to hear, you probably got it. And he definitely corrected some policy misinterpretations about whether his environmental plan or anything else that the Trump team has been saying about him. So I think it, it he did a good enough job where he got to talk about himself and what he was doing. And also Trump put on a terrible show for himself. Jeff, what do you think about it? No, I think you have it right there. Hills. I think broadly, like the one thing I came out of that performance for Biden was his him being able to clearly articulate and kind of get rid of the notion that he's kind of on the far left of the the Democratic wing of the uh, Democratic Party, uh, where obviously he is the opportunity to be, frankly, one of the more progressive p- policies, assuming the performance of Democrats kind of across the Senate and the House. Um, but his appeal has always fundamentally been to independents and moderates. And obviously, I think that that came off pretty well. Uh, and that's where, to a large extent, this uh, presidential election is being fought. I also did think he, one other good moment I really liked about Biden was I think it's very hard to be above the fray when Trump is constantly interrupting you and doing all these things. But what I thought he was, Biden was very effective when he was able to kind of turn to the camera and kind of push Trump aside and just speak directly to the American uh, viewer and directly make his point and then kind of cut it off. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I really like that too. Like he's, he looked at the camera and I don't think Trump ever did that. <laughs> but I think that's a really good point. And I, I actually heard from my dad who was voting for Biden, but has been a little swingy in terms of his affiliation, he liked that too. So my dad's a microcosm for something more. Here's what I think did not go well for Biden at that debate. So Trump's strategy on Biden, number one. Obviously, Trump's, despite looking like like an ass, which ended up hurting him more, Trump actually successfully threw Biden off his message. He did a really good job executing his strategy of interrupting Biden. Numerous times, um, Trump's interruptions broke Biden's chain of thought and used Biden's speaking time when he was about to deliver a set of attack. So here's an example of this. And Biden is about to deliver an attack about Trump's taxes. And Trump interrupts him and just completely takes his time away. So let's take a listen. And he does take advantage of the tax cuts. That's why I'm going to eliminate the Trump tax cuts. And we're going to, I'm going to eliminate those tax okay. cuts and make sure that we invest in the people who, in fact, need the help. People out there need help. But why didn't you do it over 20, uh, in the no, last no, no, 25 no, years? No, because you are president. Because you are president screwing no, no, things no. up. So you know, I, I started to get a little frustrated about that. I mean, there's only so much you can do, but it was really remarkably successful in stopping Biden from speaking and actually delivering the offensive attacks. And that's the second point that I'm going to make: is that 
Biden, I don't think, did as much offense as I would have really hoped he was going to do. I mean, Biden was supposed to, quote, beat him like a drum. That's when he started the primary off, and I think it, he has since hadn't said that in a while. But even then, even if the campaign was intentional about the strategy Biden was doing, I really think he could have landed some more uh, low-hanging punches that were there, whether it was about the lying about COVID, which was still very present in the news, the amount of taxes that Trump has, you know, Trump's taxes and the grift of his administration and how it affects working families and also the environment. I think there is a lot of really low-hanging fruit that I would have loved to see Biden talk about and I think would have even went better for him. So what do you think about that, Jeff? Yeah, and I'm, I'm always a little bit torn on this because on one side, like when you're watching that debate, like when you see Trump speak or interrupt him on these certain points or like there is an issue like you you know the issues well enough where like you want to be on that stage and make that point and like really create that like viral moment but on the same on the same side like i get why why one it might be difficult while trump is constantly interrupting you but then also too look Biden can be a little bit risk adverse here, right? He doesn't need to spark that viral moment to inspire people to vote for him because frankly, the people who are likely going to vote for him are already planning on doing so. So I like to, ha- uh, while I understand potential going to this being a little bit risk adverse, right? I think we're both in agreement, Hills, that it's frustrating to watch these things and to have Biden be accused of things of corruption and grift, that, like that is so rampant on the Republican side, like the, the rank hypocrisy that you just really like, it just makes it frankly difficult to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember talking to you about this, you know, afterwards and I, I maybe if I was a debate, I'm not a debate coach, so they don't pay me enough for that. <laughs> I also don't have a job doing it, but uh so that was something I saw, and, and I think you're right. It's probably you don't need to be that risky during a debate. You just, Trump was already doing the damage to himself. But why why did this debate matter, right? Why does this matter at the end of the day? So Biden had opened up a huge polling lead in national polls in the polls since the debate. And we're going to link some of the polls uh, in the show notes in case you want to look yourself. Um, there's also a, a smaller bounds in state polls, which is kind of where the whole ballgame is because you vote. Each state has its own voice, not a national, uh, not a national vote. Trump, after getting COVID, has slumped in many polls, including few that would be outside of the average polling error, which is good. That means Biden's lead is a little bit more foolproof if the poll is correct. Americans got a taste of the real Trump. He had no policy, no vision, no plans, honestly. And Biden's positives actually went up after the debate, which makes his case for you know, getting the white working class back in the Midwest uh, stronger. And that's why Ohio is now a toss up. And lastly, you know, it set the tone for the closing arguments of the campaign. There's not much time left for Trump to turn things around. It's possible since, you know, Hillary Clinton had a similar bounce in October, but it is a very different race this year. So Jeff, do you, what are your thoughts about that? And did, you know, is there anything else that I missed of why this debate really mattered? Yeah, I mean, I'd make the argument that it mattered in the sense that it didn't, right? For, at least from Biden's perspective, right? The heat, Trump had a bad performance, I think, when you look at like how it shifted opinions, right, of him. Like people got a sense, a true vision, peek into like the true terrible person that Trump is, uh, which obviously turned off or further dissuaded some voters. 
but again, I think then coming right off of this, we had the full kind of week-long news cycle around his uh, COVID uh, infection, right? And the general kind of super spreader event that it, that became the White House. Um, so I think from that perspective, like it's just a lot and a lot of lost time from the Trump campaign where it's, again, to the benefit of Biden to just essentially run the run out the clock. Hopefully Biden is able to run out the clock at this point. And you're right. I think since this, this only helped him and it didn't like change the race as it was, it's probably a good thing that it didn't shake the boat as much as it could have. So uh, let's move on to the VP debate with Harrison Pence. So what went well in that debate? So in my perspective, no news is good news. VP debates actually rarely change the dynamic of, of the race, even if there's a clear winner. And I'm going to link the tweet by Harry Enten, who is uh, the CNN pollster, and uh, he has some information about that. No visible gaffe is good for the guy in the lead, and that's Biden. Kamala showed that she wasn't this boogie woman of the left, you know, as, as I'm sure Donald Trump's ads make her out to be. Millions got to have their second real look at Kamala Harris, who is portrayed as, you know, the gateway to the progressive hell (laughs) to right wing voters. She's liberal, but she made an effective case on why she isn't the scary being that the GOP really make her out to be and demonstrated that she can hold her own on a national stage, which is important to a lot of people. Pence flip flopped quite a bit. Pence multiple times refused to answer questions, which over time in the debate became super apparent. And at the end of the debate, Kamala got a small bump in positives. And honestly, any movement that shows a positive way towards what people think about a candidate is a good thing. So those are what I think went well for the debate. What do you what do you think about that, Jeff? You had it right. I think like the the depiction of Kamala in the media has been really that like I mean, you read some of like the talking points, whereas like Kamala is like the most left person in the whole entire Democratic Party. But I think this really just, I mean, at the end of the day, like she explained, she was one on board with all of the kind of policy proposals that the Biden and the Kamala administration are, would be proposing. And I think she was able to communicate that in a way that was down to earth and again, appealed to the kind of more potentially more moderate centrist people who would be open to being swayed at this point in the election. Yeah, yeah, I mean if if anything this helped her with people who were concerned about her, which is a good thing, right? I mean there's there's really as you just as you said there's really not many people who are who are out there who haven't decided who they're going to vote for at this point and I don't know how you couldn't decide at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I think on that point, Hills, is I think the part the part of the thing is like when, in the, the current state of, I think, the Republican and Democratic Party, even Kamala being fairly liberal here, right? Um, like those policies still work towards the average voter too, right? She's not like she's proposing something where and you look on the right, on, on the right, right? Those the equivalent of that far on the spectrum, the ideas they're actually proposing are like very harmful to the average voter. So I think she can hold her own without even um, giving, seeming like she's flip-flopping away from her true values too much, which I think she was very effective at. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think, I think even liberal voters who they know what she's doing and it's better to have her in the white house than have Mike Pence in the white house. And I hope that's apparent to people. Uh, here's what, here's what, I think didn't go well in the VP debate. So number one, it's a little bit of the same critique about Biden is that I saw Kamala hold back a little bit. 
It was clear that there was intention here, get, have Kamala give an even performance, and she did just that. She held back on punches quite a few times when she had the opportunity, but Pence did not. Pence didn't really land all these attacks, but he clearly went swinging because that's what you do when you're, you're down in the polls. The court packing question. I agree. I think this question to Democrats is a little, is quite absurd. But in the debate, Biden and Kamala have been a little bit mum on whether they want to expand the Supreme Court to put, you know, more justices in there. And I think they have a better response now. But if they get asked on national news again, I think they need to have a really forceful response, unlike what they said, I'll tell you after the election or not answer the question, because I think it's going to be more apparent if you don't have an answer for it, even though I understand why they're doing it. My opinion on this, it really wasn't a debate. I mean, the moderator was was good, but they really held the reins tight to to stop interruptions or whatever. And it wasn't a real back and forth. It was it was just kind of like a question and answer session at most of the time. So I feel like you can have a debate and be respectful. I felt it was a little bit structured. And I thought, you know, what also didn't go well was the fly that everyone knows about. Just because it took away from the substance, which is never a good thing if you have voters out there that are paying, looking to pay attention. Like the the conversation to be about Pence and Trump's bad policies, not about a fly on his head, right? That's my that's my thought about it. Jeff, what do you think about it? Yeah, hells, I and mean, I think one thing Kamala did well, I think when you mentioned was, I think she definitely held back, but right, what I think she achieved by doing that potentially was making sure there weren't any kind of negative prejudices that were incorrectly validated, right, by her doing the same exact things that Pence would be doing, right? Which then, which kind of shows like Kamala's favorables went up after, which means that people got to see her as a real person uh, on that debate stage, and we're not scared of what, what they saw. Um, I think, frankly, and this is a reluctant answer, is Pence, he's like a, he's a good-ish debater, right? Like, he has that really, like, aw shucks debate style when he uh, when he answers his his questions, right? And like when he, whenever you hear him speak versus Trump, he's he is just a typical by the book political speaker, right? He can walk through all the, the talking points, uh, especially when uh, if he doesn't get the chance to respond to the um, a question uh, and they move on, he just decides to keep talking about prior topics that he thinks is relevant. Oh, yeah, he is. He's a uh, political actor if there was none other. I mean, he's a shining example of it. You're right. He does know how to hold his own in a debate. And honestly, I I hate to do this, but the best answer Pence had all night was the last question where this, you know, the question from like the girl in Utah, where I honestly saw that like maybe Pence has a soul in him (laughs) at some level. Like he was like the first genuine answer I've ever heard him talk about. But yeah, I mean, I don't think he he did a bad job in the debate. I mean, he certainly didn't blow Kamala out of the water. I, I you know, if anything, I think it was a draw or Kamala win. I mean, there are different different goals and intentions there, which I don't think he necessarily performed on either. No, and I think people go. I, I completely agree, and I I do believe that Kamala came out on top in that debate. And I think I think almost we get so used to be Trump being so incoherent rambly right when you actually have someone else in the republican party speak by contrast um it is it really just shows like how much trump more he could have been effective right if he actually understood anything he was doing 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that kind of gets me a little bit worried for President Pence. Like, President Pence would know how to get things done in a way that wouldn't generate as much criticism as Trump does, which is kind of scary. Um, and so why did this debate matter? I mean, did it matter at all? I mean, the Biden ticket has maintained his polling edge, so no news is good news. Pence kind of looks stale, I think, to a lot of people. You're right. He was a little bit more of a calming presence, but he didn't invigorate. He was, you know, he was all shucks, but he was all shucks that, like, he didn't really inspire a lot of, like, charisma in that debate, which I think you need a little bit if you're on a televised debate. If there isn't a reason why this matters, it's a good thing for the leader, which is Biden. So you, if you're in the lead, you don't want to do anything to shake up your lead. And I don't think this shook up any lead at all. If anything, it probably helped him on the margins. Jeff, do you have any uh, any last words on the VP debate? No, I think, right, the flip side of Pence having that kind of aw shucks debating, right, and him being able to kind of articulate policies or veil them in ways that, while negative to most of America, seem positive when he kind of spins it, is that, again, he's he's not inspirational. He's very boring, to put it frankly. Uh, I, I think when you compare him to like a Pete Buttigieg, right, kind of similar style on how they um, orate, but he can be a lot more inspirational. Again, Pence, um, just like, frankly, some of Trump's previous performance on the, the presidential debate, both seemed, frankly, a little bit low en- energy, to throw that back at them. Low energy Trump. <laughs> low energy Trump. Yeah, they did. I, and I think uh, they're going to have one more debate coming up on the 22nd. So we'll see if, if strategies change. I mean, this is Trump's last chance in front of millions of people to make a case for himself. And uh, hopefully Biden can just hold his own and, and maintain the lead up until Election Day. So we have one more debate and maybe it will matter a lot. That's your entree today. And we're for your dessert, we're going to talk about long shot Senate challengers. And that's coming up right now. For your dessert today, we have a really good treat for you. We're going to be talking about long shot Senate challengers. So this is exciting for me because I like talking about this. And I know, Jeff, you like talking about it, too. There are a number of Senate races that are considered long shots that maybe they're a little bit more outside of Democrats' usual states that they win, right? Or toss-up states. But they've gotten increasingly competitive. 538 rates the Senate as favoring Democratic control come come November and uh, next year. And these races will certainly help put Democrats over the top. We'll go through each state and our takes. And uh, these are mostly only the real long shots. And so we're not going to be talking about some of the really hotly contested ones, but we're talking about ones maybe on the margins that we Democrats maybe didn't have in their sights initially. So the first one we're going to talk about is North Carolina. It's the probably the least amount long shot based on the polling, but probably worth taking a look over because just recently there have been two scandals with the candidates. Our boy Cal Cunningham has uh, gotten himself into a little bit of a mess. He had very risque text messages with a consultant and i think maybe they even had an intimate relationship so he cheated on his wife and was not good in the eyes of some voters although in other voters uh, there have been polls afterwards and some men had a higher approval rating of cal cunningham which is the same thing we saw after bill clinton and the Lewinsky scandal so uh, some things don't change tom tillis also had some negative things come out about him and his wife and potential uh, assault and harassment of his wife or former wife so 
all not good there. So uh, there are two scandals that could shake the race. Jeff, do you have anything to, to say about North Carolina before we uh, talk about what we think the results are going to be? No, and I, I, I kind of put this on the list, even though, I again, as you mentioned, like I think it's still pretty well favored. I think people would not have, I think no one really thought that if we, we kind of do a rewind back to the beginning of the year. And it's it's frankly exciting to see how well the Democrats are doing in the Senate, Senate uh, race. But again, did part of me think this was going to be an issue? Yes. But again, if as long as he can just cruise out to that that the finish line and get into the Senate, I will be more than happy. I'm saying this is going to go for Cal, even if, if he trails a little bit behind Biden. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is this is also going to go for Cal. I think Cal is pretty well liked, although his standing among women, understandably, and it should also be men, <laughs> has gone down. But man, you just got to keep it in your pants for democracy. And I think he's going to win this one. And but you know, his political future might be a little bit tainted by this. And he's got some things to work at at home. So two for Cal on this one. And I know Josh, although he's not on the pod today, he would also say Cal as well. South Carolina, Jeff, do you want to start on South Carolina? Yeah, so obviously, this I think was far off the radar of most everybody. Um, however, recently, Jamie Harrison has become more and more competitive in this state. Uh, he's ra- raised a whopping $57 million in Q3. Uh, polling is getting closer to almost break even. Uh, but I think to. to to be seen whether, given how Republican South Carolina is, that if he can get over the edge. But I will let Hills give his take. Yeah, oh boy, this would be a great Senate seat to have because Lindsey Graham sucks. <laughs> I mean, this is, he's just, he is the worst type of person out there right now. And he flip-flops, he doesn't tell the truth, he cozies up to Trump after really just, you know, him dissing his best friend who's now dead, which is John McCain. And $57 million, that's unheard of in a Senate race in one quarter. $57 million is huge. So Jamie Harrison is chariz- is, has a lot of charisma. I honestly, it's really going to depend on the night for election night. I think Jamie Harrison can win, but it will be really close. I mean, this is South Carolina we're talking about. And Jamie Harrison is not like a conservative Democrat. I think he's pretty moderate to liberal. So, um, you know... I think he can do this, but it's going to be a very big squeaker. I say it will be an upset. I'm going to say we're going to have a Senator Harrison. Jeff, what do you think? Unfortunately, I'm going to go with a Republican hold here. I mean, when I think about where the race is, especially like in South Carolina, like I I see more like anti-Trump, like white voter upside kind of in the, the Midwest rather than the South. I'm honestly thinking that he gets close, which is going to be super impressive on on its own. Uh, but I think this is going to end more the likes of uh, Stacey Abrams or Andrew Gillum. Oh, I know you're probably right, Jeff, but oh, my heart. Both. We could have had Abrams. We could have so much. We could have had a Governor Gillum. We could have had a Governor Abrams. Can we please have something? Please? Let's Let's all, if you want to contribute to Jamie, he's got a lot of money, but Let's go through this list, and maybe you can make a contribution to one of these other candidates, too. Alaska. So the candidate there is Dr. Al Gross. And fun thing is, I've met his son. Very nice guy. Pulling for Dr. For Dr. Gross here. So he is an independent, but he leans, leans Democrat. And he's running on the Democratic Party line. 
and he's gaining the the lead against a Republican incumbent, um, Senator Sullivan. And Alaska is actually very independent in some ways. I mean, it had a Democratic senator as as uh, recently as 2014 with Mark Begich, and it has a a lot of the Indigenous Americans also vote Democratic a lot. And there have been some scandals that have come up recently in the race with. Um, uh, ties to Chinese companies for the incumbent senator, the Republican. So I think uh, I think this race is going to be a little bit tight. Jeff, you have any thoughts on this race? Yeah, I think to that point, Hillsburg. Obviously, when you look at it, it's a very Republican state. But there is this interesting aspect, like Lisa Murkowski, who I think is of all Republican senators the most respectable, at least in my personal book, for what for standing up for what she she believes in. But you look at the 2010 election there she won her writing campaign right against a republican and a democrat largely buoyed by a native alaskan so like if there is a race that could kind of come out of left field i think alaska would be it and i will give my while part of me still thinks it will go r i'll choose to be optimistic here and say we'll get a surprise upset i agree with you i want gross to win i'm feeling gross uh, and, you know, uh, don't take your eyes off this race. So I'm going to say upset. And I know you, you wrote this in the notes, too. We're going to have polling out on Friday, Friday the 15th. We're recording this the day before that happens. So there might be some really good polling for gross or it might be really competitive. So it all comes out to turnout at the end of the day. So D- don't sleep on Alaska. Don't, yeah. <laughs> don't sleep on Alaska. Never sleep on Alaska. So that's two for Dr. Gross. Kansas, do you want to take uh, take Kansas, Jeff? And I might I may actually get this wrong, but Bar- Barbara Balliner? That's close enough. I think that's that's we'll go with that. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it, right? Because like this is such a far out race, right? Like Kansas is so deeply red, where because the national environment has shifted so much, right? And frankly, there's a lot of really bad Republicans from Kansas. Chris Kobach to be first on top of his, the mind, but plenty of other ones out there. At the end of the day, though, right, when it push came to shove, like, they actually elected a Dem governor in 2018. So while on the surface it might be a deep red state, there is an element of uh, opportunity for Dems to look forward to. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, there's a whole book called What's the Matter with Kansas, right? And it's about how Kansas should be a populist and Democratic stronghold, but there's there's other factors at play. But again, I mean, you, you mentioned Chris Kobach because he's not running in this race, but he he led to Kansas electing a Democratic governor in 2018, right? Because they hate Chris Kobach. And there's there's a lot of other things at play here, but there's a competitive Senate race in Kansas this year. And unfortunately, my take on this is that the GOP is going to hold this seat, but I think it's going to be a close election. But I think I think they will pull this one out because it is Kansas. Yeah, I think I agree. And my kind of take is going to be similar to South Carolina, like where this this shift to Democrats is going to be very large, right? But it's not going to get them over that that hurdle to actually take the seat here. Yeah, unless something crazy happens up until the election, which who knows. And uh, Montana's our next seat. So Montana, uh, Steve Bullock, who is the incumbent governor of Montana, but he's running for Senate. He's a popular governor, and he's in a close and polarized race. Right now, the polling has shown that the senator, the Republican senator that he's running against, his name is Steve Daines, 
is probably up in the polling. There have been some ones with Bullock up, but most of them have had the Republican up. And it's going to be a close one. I mean, Bullock has, has outraised his opponent or, is, you know, slightly outraised his opponent last quarter. So this is a close one and something that actually take a seat away from the Republicans. What do you think about that, Jeff? Well, Democrats could, in his, more historically, kind of got in one uh, statewide races in Monta- Montana. But at the end of the day, it's honestly a very rural state, right? And over the last four plus years, we've seen a very big shift in terms of rural voters becoming uh, aligned with the Republican Party. And I think even though Bullock is a great candidate and he's, he's a, he was a formerly, he, he is the incumbent governor and he's popular, I'm not, I'm just not sure that he can outweigh the bigger trend here. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I see this as a, unfortunately, as I think the GOP are going to hold the seat as well, but also barely. I think it's going to be a close election. It's not going to be a blowout at all. Next up is Iowa. Again, another state that I don't think was on anyone's list, but is currently probably one of the more toss-up-y ones at this point. Theresa Greenfield counted out, but is running a strong campaign against Joni Ernst. And it's a very tight race. I think actually like most of the polling is showing Ernst looking like she's going to lose this election uh, to Greenfield, which is obviously very exciting. I think Iowa, but actually let me open up to you, Hills, and let's see what your take is. Yeah, I think Iowa is the most fascinating race out there right now. I agree with you. And uh, it just shows that if you have a good, a good uh, candidate and you have a crappy incumbent who has been MIA in her state. And you can you can really pull out a win, especially in this polarized environment, because, you know, Biden and Trump, Iowa is now a toss-up state, although it probably leans more more towards Trump. But, you know, people can are clearly fed up with Joni Ernst there. And uh, my take is that this is going to be an upset in favor of Greenfield. I think we're going to I think we're going to win a Senate seat there. Look, Hills, I think I'm on the, the, the same. I'm aligned with you on this one where I really do think that Greenfield is not is even going to be an upset. Right. She's just going to she's almost at some point becoming the favorite in this in this uh, race, which is obviously very exciting. I think to your point on Joni Ernst, I think there's been a lot of erosion in like the Republican brand in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we had the derecho, which kind of devastated a lot of, of Iowa. Um, so there's a lot of, I think, bigger kind of frustrations and trends, and it does not help to be an incumbent who is not responsive to your constituents. Yeah. At the end of the day, you work for them, right? So if you're not responsible for them, they're going to, they're going to kick you out. Well, that's how it should work. And (laughs) yeah, right. (laughs) The last state we have is Georgia. So Georgia has two elections this year. There's a regular Senate race and there's another one because the incumbent Senator has retired making a special election to fill the rest of his term. So you have two Senate seats this year up for grabs. The first one in the Georgia regular one, John Ossoff is looking to notch his first win and polls show that he's either tied or slightly behind the Republican, um, Dave Perdue. The, the special one, the special election, which is governed by different, you know, they have a, a jungle primary system there. Reverend Raphael Warnock leads the primary uh, where all candidates compete and the top two go on if they're under 50%. 
And two Republicans right now are splitting the vote, and one Dem is trying to play a global spoiler, though Warnock has really consolidated the Democratic vote there. The hope is that Warnock can get as high as possible, consolidate the Democratic vote, potentially get to 50, though that's a big step. So whoever wins that jungle primary will likely have another race to run in January. So that's a hard one, but there are two Senate seats here. Look, Hills, I'm, I don't think anyone uh, is too upset that Matt Lieberman, of all people, um, is, was, or was surprised that Matt, another Lieberman, is trying to play a spoiler into the plans of the Democratic Party. What's been great to see is how much they've consolidated around uh, Warnock and really giving him the kind of clear path to getting to that kind of runoff election. Broadly, when I look at these two elections, I'm going to still say they're both going to be held by the GOP, and here is why. Um, So my understanding of uh, Senate elections is uh, in Georgia is that even for, let's start with Ossoff, uh, he doesn't seem to be beating Biden's margins that much, right? So he's, so it would not only take Biden to kind of blow out Georgia, but even if he's below 50%, I believe it then still goes into a runoff. So if we have Joe Biden squeak out a victory uh, in Georgia, it still goes to a runoff. And at the end of the day, lower turnout helps, a lower turnout runoff election probably helps the Republicans in in this state. So he probably ends up losing even if he gets that far. Um, and then on the, the special election, look, I think it's a similar situation. I actually would be a little bit more, almost more bullish on Warnock. I think he can probably generate more enthusiasm from the base, which actually might end up helping Osf as well. But um, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you on this, although both are really tempting. I mean, Georgia is really a, a tough swing state here, and I think the GOP holds both. I mean, Biden may squeak out a win. Ossoff may pull out a very small win, but I think you're, I think Warnock is the better candidate here, but he's got a harder burden on him to get over 50% in a, like a four-person race. So um, I think it, it ends up it ends up with the GOP holding both of these seats. Although I think uh, we're going to give them the run for their money in Georgia, so I don't think the, the narrative here is over. So, you know, final take on all these seats are Dems can expand their map. Um, in these long shot Senate races due to Trump's handling of COVID and everything with this election, the more seats that we win, the bigger majority to make change. This is not the only chance for progress. It will depend on, you know, if the Republican Party goes down the path of being a crazy state party like Virginia or or fight for the center, the moderate voters. Jeff, do you want to do I think you wrote some of these notes. I'm going to let you handle the rest of these final takes. Yeah, I think this is this has a big assumption that I think the presidential race goes Democratic. And I think when you kind of look forward, right, even like, I mean, Democrats had an amazing election in 2018, but even with that blue wave, weren't able to capture all of the sentences they wanted. On right, top right. of that, um, they're they aren't they were not supposed to be doing this well and being this competitive and across all these different races this time around right the fact that they're favored to take the senate is crazy given how rural uh, focused is and while a lot of more republican seats are up this time around uh into in 2020 they're actually the 
some of the, the less competitive seats, right? There's obviously a few exceptions there. Looking forward to t- uh, 2022, there's actually a, a good pack of uh, good-looking pickups. So if we get a Biden presidency, right, it's going to be f- – and, and hopefully take the Senate – we, we, we will have the opportunity in 2022 to expand that lead and really kind of put down the Republican Party and really give create a mandate for kind of change in this country. Whether it's, I think it's, the, the key states I would look at are uh, Burr's retiring in North Carolina, Wisconsin with Ron Johnson, who's like my personally least favorite senator, Florida, Florida with Marco Rubio, although he's probably a little bit competitive to me, Senator to me in Pennsylvania's retiring. So all four of those kind of states are real toss up opportunities for Dems. And then even if we miss out on Georgia, we'll actually get another take at that uh, Georgia special election come 2022. All these, we have, there's a lot of Senate seats up for grabs in the next few years. And I think you make a good point here. Any, and I know this is what you were alluding to too, like any win that we have on these long shots, bake in more Senate majority, even in the years like this, this is a good year, but we have better years on our map coming up. So any win that we get now is a net asset for the Democratic Party to keep the Senate. So, so you know, there's only there's only some good races ahead of us, hopefully support one of these candidates if you can, you know, you can always volunteer for them any other way. But these are some of the, the long shot, long shot Senate's challengers. And I think with that, this was a fun, fun dessert. And I think we're going to give you your pre-dinner shot, which will be right here in a moment. Everyone, you've been patiently waiting. So your pre-dinner shot question is, when was the first televised vice presidential debate? And the first televised vice presidential debate was in 1976, which was Mondale versus Dole. Boy. Did, uh, did you expect that answer, Jeff? Honestly, I thought it was going to be earlier, but I guess uh, going back to our earlier segment, uh, the, D- the VP debates are not typically the most impactful. Yeah, and even back then, I mean, the VP was like your running mate to help get the party on board. It wasn't really like an active charisma running mate. And so people didn't think it was important enough. But 1976 is your answer. So if you got that right uh, beforehand, you can give yourself a pat on the back. And we're at the end of our episode today, so uh, before you go, there, we have a few important messages. The intro and the outro music is by Brett Hillsberg, and the transition music is by Joseph McDade. I want to I thank Jeff for being a, a guest on the podcast. Jeff, you did super great. It was great having you on. Uh, hopefully, when, when Josh and I are on here, you can join again soon. So thank you for joining today. Yeah, Hills. Uh, obviously, great to join. Had a great time. Always um, great time talking politics with you. Yeah, no, for sure, especially since we're on the same team now, uh, although it was fine when we were arguing, too. If you enjoy the episode, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. Please do it. It'll be, it'll be great for you, and it'll be great for us. If you like the episode, leave us a written review. If you didn't like the episode, that's fine, too. Maybe you can be a little nice. If we get more, five or more reviews, it will help make the show turn up for other people, which is only going to help them and see if they like hearing about us, too. If you have any questions, you can email us at threecoursepolitics at gmail.com. Jeff, you have anything you want to add before we wrap up? All I can say is I would not have felt this way a, a little bit earlier, but I am genuinely excited about um, the November election.
<laughs> I hope I'm excited as you when November 4th rolls around. <laughs> we, we have to hope so. But um, no, th- yeah. We may need to wait till the 5th or later, but we'll, we'll, let's uh, knock on wood. Yeah, yeah, knock on wood on that one. Well, thanks again for coming, and thank you all for listening, and we'll be back again in your podcast app soon. So thanks all. Bye.